Thank you for singing this morning, church. That was the best singing I have ever heard <laughs> on a Sunday morning at Del Sur Baptist Church. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I wanted, I wanted to, to, to not waste my voice and save it for the sermon, but I couldn't. <laughs> Our sermon text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22. If you want to use the pew Bible in front of you, that's page 16. Page 16 in the Pew Bible. If you are uh, reading through the Bible in a year, this, this text is in your rearview mirror now. But um, I don't want to read it again this morning. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mount or go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, what a beautiful picture 
that you have given us as we look to the history of redemption this morning. Lord, that we would hear the gospel this morning in this story. And I ask this morning, Lord, that by your Spirit's power, you would give us faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're feeling a little tight-chested, because this is a sermon about giving, I want to put you at ease this morning, all right? I've titled the sermon, The Gospel and the Grace of Giving, Intentionally. Remember, our teaching series here at the, at the beginning of this year is not a these are the things you must do teaching series. But this is what Christ has done, and these are the ways he's working in you through his spirit. Okay? Don't confuse those things. And so if your new birth into Christ, I'm talking to Christians here, if your new birth into Christ happened by the spirit, Working through the gospel message, we talked about hearing the word a couple weeks ago and last week. If you were born again by that message, by the Spirit's power in you, then then you've got to see that all of our growth in Christ's likeness, our growth in grace, it's all founded in and rooted in and flowing from the gospel. Okay? And the problem is, that when we think about something really tangible, something like giving, it is very, very easy to ignore the gospel. Let, let me show you what I mean by this. What are some of the different methods that I could stand up here and use to motivate your giving? Well, I, I could say this. I could say, if you give, then you get. Right? Sow a seed. You give this ministry $40, and if you have enough faith, God will give you $400. Let me ask you, do you need to be born again into Christ to make a low-risk, high-reward investment like that? You don't. That's an appeal to greed, isn't it? But that's not the only way to motivate your giving. I could point to your guilt, too, couldn't I? I could show you just how miserly your giving is compared to someone else, right? Click over to the next slide. I have here a list of all the members of our church and how much they gave last year from least to greatest. If you really thought I'd do that to you, you deserved, you deserved to have this image burned into your mind, all right? I'd never give you up. But that would certainly motivate you, wouldn't it, if I put that list on the screen for you? But that motivation would be nothing more than guilt. Guilt is profoundly effective at motivating you to give. But let me ask you again, do you need to be born again into Christ to be motivated by guilt? You don't, do you? You don't. Giving 
is not a distinctively Christian act, okay? Muslims give. Mormons give. Jews give. Giving is not even distinctly religious. To tell people that orcas are going extinct, and they'll give. Tell people that children in Ethiopia are starving, and they'll give. We could bring some of Jerry's kids on the stage, and we could open up the phone lines, and you'd give, right? I could preach a Muslim or a Jewish or a secular humanist sermon that would motivate you to give abundantly. And we as a church could make the bottom line. Maybe we could tuck some savings away for the new air conditioners we need. And through a gospelless, greed and guilt motivated series on giving, we could maintain a church full of faithful givers who build huge buildings, but unknowingly are paving their way to hell with dollar bills and pledge drives. You see the danger? You see what I'm getting at? This is dangerous. Because giving is something we can do. Something we can accomplish with our own brains and our hands and our pocketbooks. We are at enormous risk of giving with a wrong heart. It's good to give. It's virtuous to give. It's praiseworthy and it's right. But it does not acquit you before a holy God. So how do we, how do we talk rightly about giving? Well, because we're in Christ, right giving begins with the gospel. Everything in the Christian life begins with the gospel, doesn't it? So my aim today, much to the dismay of the finance committee, is not that you give. In fact, we intentionally kept the offering where it is in our liturgy before the sermon so you would know without a doubt that I'm not trying to get you to give. But I do want you to understand what gospel-motivated giving looks like. All right, And I firmly believe that as a deepening of your understanding of the gospel and how it weaves its way through your entire life, you'll see how giving is connected to that. And you know what will happen? You'll grow in grace, and you'll grow in generosity. And I won't have to ask you. The Spirit will do it in you. In fact, you're you're going to see from God's word this morning that joyful, generous, gospel-motivated giving is not even something we do. It's something we receive. Something we receive from the Spirit because of His work in us. And because of that, it's a means that the Spirit uses to grow us in Christ's likeness. I'm going to see this broken out into two parts this morning. The first is that question of what does the gospel have to do with giving? We'll address that. The second is this truth claim that I made. The gospel-motivated giving is something we receive from the Spirit. Where do I get that from? How is giving something we receive? And we'll look to that. We read this morning as our sermon text the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I want us to focus on one particular one particular aspect of this story. And it's the same thing that Paul focuses on in Galatians and Romans and 
James focuses on in the book of James and the same thing that the writer of the Hebrews looks at. Well, what is that? It's Abraham's hope in the gospel. Let me give you a little backstory first. You don't know the story of Abraham. But before, before the Lord called Abraham, Abraham, as, as far as we can tell, was just a worldly pagan. Right? There's nothing special about him. He's a worldly pagan. He lives with his dad and his wife and his nephew. And, and they're happily accumulating wealth, living their best life now. And when, and when Abraham's dad dies, the Lord says to Abraham, leave everything behind. Leave everything behind and go to the place that I show you. And then he makes Abraham this, this promise. Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, don't forget that promise. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 8, that the actual gospel was preached to Abraham in that promise. Abraham heard the gospel in that promise. And that really is the seed of the gospel, isn't it? It, It will truly be through Abraham's offspring way down the line, Jesus, that the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus will come as the promised one, and by his death, he will bless the world. That's the gospel promise, and that is inseparable. It's inseparable. What Jesus does, who he is, you can't separate that from Genesis 12.3. So what does Abraham do in response to this gospel promise? Well, Genesis 12, 4 says, he went. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abraham hears the gospel, he believes it, and he goes. Years and decades pass. And I'm skipping a lot. Get it? But a lot. Come on. <laughs> but God keeps telling Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the world be blessed. He keeps telling him this. Don't forget this, Abraham. I'm giving you a child. This is coming. This is coming. And old Abraham and his old barren wife keep waiting and waiting, and nothing happens. They get impatient. They try to take matters into their own hands, and it goes terribly. And God says, keep waiting. So they keep waiting. And then when Abraham is as good as dead, when he's 100 years old, he and his wife Sarah finally receive the promised child. But God's not done. He's not done working through Abraham. So the Lord says in our passage, now we're at Genesis 22. That was 10 chapters of Genesis, in case you're wondering. The Lord says in our passage, take your son, your only son, go and offer him. Kill your son and burn him. And we saw what happens, didn't we? We read this. Abraham and Isaac climbed the mountain alone. Isaac asked the, the most heartbreaking question in all of the Bible. Dad, I see the, the fire and I see the wood. Where is the lamb? But Abraham responds with, with an answer that is heartbreaking as Isaac's question is. Abraham's answer is this much faith-filled, isn't it? I, God will provide the lamb, son. God himself We'll provide the lamb. And so up they go, up the mountain. Now I want to pause for a moment here in our story. I want you to just just reflect. Who called Abraham? God did. Right? Abraham wasn't looking for God. He wasn't seeking God. God called him. 
And he hadn't done anything that would make him worthy to be called by God, to be used for this purpose. And who made the promise to Abraham that all the families in the earth would be blessed? Who, who told the gospel to Abraham? God did. God initiated this entire redemptive story by, by, by simply speaking his word to Abraham. Well, then, and then who showed that that promise was going to be fulfilled by giving Abraham that son? God did. It wasn't Abraham. What part did Abraham play in any of this? He heard God and he believed God. That's all he did. It was God doing the calling, God making the promises, and God keeping the promises. Abraham simply trusted in God's faithfulness. He believed what God said. And that's what's happening even here as we together with Abraham are going up this mountain in what is literally and figuratively the climax of the Abraham story. Abraham is trusting God's greater promise that it is still, despite what God's asked him to do, it's still somehow going to be through Isaac that the nations will be blessed. Abraham believes the Lord. He's still trusting that the gospel God told him about is true. Abraham, you can imagine, he's looking backwards at his life over the last 25 years, maybe more, and just thinking, I have been brought into the promises of God by the grace of God alone. I've done nothing to deserve this son that God has given me, He's the Lord's promise. And he, the Lord will be faithful to fulfill his own promise. He already has been. So I'm just going to trust him. And it's in that hope that Abraham has the confidence here to take his son up that mountain. And it's in that hope that he, that he lays the wood down to make the altar. And it's in that hope that he binds his own son and lays him on the altar. And it's in that hope that he takes a hold of the knife Hebrews eleven nineteen describes Abraham's hope in the gospel this way. He says, he considered, at that moment, he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. And it's in the midst of Abraham's gospel hope and the resurrection. Again, Abraham is trusting in God's promises. It's here in that hope at just the right moment that the Lord provides yet again. The Lord speaks. And he stops Abraham from killing his own son. And he provides the offering to be sacrificed in the place of his son. And that's, I mean, is there a better picture of the gospel? And so then again, at the end of this scene, if you're looking in your Bibles, we're in verse 17 now. The Lord says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. I want you to stop again. And I want you to see something here. God did not tell Abraham, if you obey me, then I will fulfill my promise. That's how the law works. This isn't a law story. This is a gospel story. Abraham simply believed God. It's not until after Abraham shows his faith that God confirms the promise. 
the nations will be blessed through your offspring. You see this? It wasn't a transaction. It was a promise from God that was responded to in faith that was followed up with a renewal of the first promise. So what was Abraham willing to give up because of his hope in that promise? His most precious possession. His own son. As far as we read in the story, Abraham had nothing to gain by giving up his son. This was simply faith outflowing from the grace that God had showed Abraham. Abraham was on his way to sacrifice Isaac because he believed God's promise, and that's it. A pastor tells the story of this woman who had been coming to his church. This is modern day times now, okay. (laughs) She's been coming to his church for a little while. She's not quite sure if she understands the gospel or if she's received Christ yet. She's been compelled by the teaching of the pastor because because he was teaching a gospel of grace. And the church she grew up in was was very much a, a salvation by works. Be a good person, right? Don't do this, don't do that. Tithe, read your Bible, and so on. And even if her church never said, you're saved by the things you do, that's what she was hearing. That's the impression she got of what Christianity was. Well, eventually this young lady stops going to church because really, you know this, you can be a decent person without the church, right? She didn't go to church for years. And then a friend invites her to this pastor's church, a church where the gospel's taught. And as she's listening, she's struggling with what the pastor's teaching. She, She can't quite buy into it because it doesn't make sense to her. But she keeps going and she keeps listening. And one day after church, she tells the pastor, I've never heard this message, salvation by grace, before. Why haven't I heard this? Almost as if asking, you're teaching something new. And the pastor says, why do you think? Why do you think you haven't heard it before? Not to be, you know, condemning of her, but just to buy time because he's stunned by the question. And she says, well, it's scary. He says, what do you mean it's scary? She says, because if you're saved by works, if you're saved by works, then there's a limit to what God can ask of you. You're like a taxpayer. You you pay what you owe. Or like a debtor, you pay what you've borrowed from. But if I'm really saved by grace because of what Jesus has done, then there's no limit to what he can ask of me. When you realize that you've been saved by grace, you have to confess, I owe him everything. She understood the gospel, didn't she? All of who I am belongs to Christ. Not me. Romans 5.10, when I was an enemy of God, Christ died for me. 1 Corinthians 6.20, I was bought with a price. Revelation 5.9, the price was the blood of the Son of God. Ephesians 2, 1, and 5. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, God, rich in mercy, 
He made me alive. Together with Christ, by grace I've been saved. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Del Cero, the moment you heard the word of Christ and the Spirit brought new life to your dead soul, you and everything you own became the blood-bought property of Jesus Christ. Your life is not yours. It's his. Your stuff is not yours. It's his. Your marriage, your children, your future, your hopes and dreams, everything, it's all his. All of who and what you are belongs to Christ. He purchased you. He purchased you, all of you, from death and has given you his life. And all you are now is Christ. You didn't just redeem your soul. Don't be a pagan. Don't think of things that way. He didn't just redeem your soul. He redeemed your entire life. Every aspect of your entire life has been reconciled to God. All of it. So when the Lord says to do something... Like give. Well, you give. Not not to earn his favor. He has already shown you his unfathomable and incomprehensible favor by giving you his son in exchange for your life. You give because you live in the righteousness of the son with a freedom that you have never known before. The freedom to to joyfully obey him because you belong to him. You see what the gospel has to do with giving? I want to think for a moment now about the passage that Mark read for us. Okay, this is where we kind of bring things together. 2 Corinthians 8. So, So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to camp out there for the rest of our time this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to give you some some context. So there's a famine going on in Jerusalem, which is where the church started, right? So there's a famine there. The churches there are really struggling. And remember, those churches in Jerusalem are the churches where the people sold everything they had in order to support one another. And well, apparently that's run out. And so they're struggling, and the churches around the Mediterranean are being asked by Paul to consider helping the church in Jerusalem. The churches in Macedonia, well, that'd be, that'd be churches like the church in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. They've all been very faithful to help. And if you read Thessalonians or you read Philippians, you'll see Paul's thanksgiving to them for their help. And so here we are in the second letter to the Corinthians, and, and Paul is using those churches in Macedonia as examples of what Christian giving in response to the gospel looks like. So hopefully you're in chapter 8 now of 2 Corinthians, and it begins this way in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given 
among the churches of Macedonia. I want to stop right there. What is this grace that has been given among the churches there? What is it? Is, is, it, their, is it their salvation? Well, yeah, it is, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what is the grace of God that was given to them? It's, it's this. Even in their extreme poverty, they joyfully and generously gave. That act of giving was a grace that was given to them. Now, how does that work? <laughs> how does that work? We'll look at verse 5 as we keep going through this chapter. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they gave themselves to the Lord. They understood the grace of God. They came to the gospel realization that they did not belong to themselves. They belonged to the Lord. And so they gave themselves to the Lord, as is right. And, and notice, they didn't give their money to the Lord. As Paul said, they gave themselves to the Lord. That's the gospel. They gave themselves to the Lord. Their lives. They gave themselves to the Lord. And then, look at this, by the will of God to us. So, so they belong to God, and then God gives them, it's according to His will that they're given to the apostles. Follow, follow the reasoning. I don't want you to miss this reasoning. Because they've been born again into Christ. They belong to Christ. They've given themselves to the Lord. You see that? That's salvation. The Macedonians are not the Macedonians anymore. They're a whole bunch of blood-bought disciples of Christ. They belong to Christ. And then by the will of God, whom they belong to, they gave themselves to the apostles. That's grace isn't it? When God does something through you, that's grace. He, he does the work, you get the benefit, that's grace. That's the essence of the grace of the gospel. So, so putting it together then, the grace of God working in them moved them to give joyfully, not out of what they had, but in their extreme poverty. In their extreme poverty and in their joy, God willed that through them the abundant gift would be given. The Macedonians didn't joyfully give money. They joyfully submitted their lives to be tools in God's hands, instruments to be used by Him for Christ's glory. Why would they do that? Because they'd been saved by Christ. And they knew that to be saved by Christ means to be saved for His glory. In, in, in verse 4, you saw that when Mark was reading it, they're literally begging Paul for the, for the favor of being allowed to do this. They see the opportunity to, to glorify Christ with, with what nothingness they have. So, so then, then Paul turns it to the Corinthians and he tells them, look at verse 7. So now he's speaking to the Corinthians directly. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now that's interesting. You could easily skim right past this verse, but I want you to look carefully. He's not saying, you Corinthians are such wonderful people, you're good at everything you do, you ought to try and be good at this too. That's not what he's saying. Think about this, the the Corinthians excel in faith. How, How does that happen? Where does faith come from? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given them their faith. They they excel in speech. That's a gift of the Spirit, isn't it? They excel in knowledge. And and he's talking about the knowledge of the Lord. That was given to them by grace. They excel in earnestness. What's earnestness? That's like a desire to serve. They're eager. And and that desire is is the Christ-like transformation that's happening in their heart. And where did that come from? The Spirit. And then look, and this is, this is where it all comes together and where you see what Paul's doing here. He says, and in our love for you. If, you. if you've missed how the Spirit is working in the Corinthians in those other areas, you can't miss this. The Corinthians have no control over Paul's love for them. They can't. How do you excel at being loved? Their being loved by Paul is the Spirit working through Paul. All that they excel in, they received as gifts of grace from God. And so when Paul encourages this church to excel in this act of grace, the the act of grace he's talking about is giving giving that is, that is like the Macedonians. It's worked out by the Spirit according to the will of God. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, do that. Excel in that. Well, how, again, how in the world do we excel in grace? This is, this is really similar to what Peter told us a few weeks ago, isn't it? Growing grace, do you remember that? How do you do something that requires someone outside of your control doing something to you or in you or through you? How can that be a command to us? Well, friends, this, this is where the means of grace comes in. All right? The means of grace are gifts from the Spirit, but we place ourselves in the position to receive them. All right? So whether it's hearing the Word of God preached or being discipled by someone else as you study the Word or giving, or being baptized, or taking the Lord's Supper, or praying, you simply place yourself in the way of those means of grace, and the Spirit grows you. Think of it like this. I'm just going to borrow one of Jesus' analogies and stretch it out a little bit, okay? So, pardon my freedom. (laughs) You're like a branch on a fruit tree. Right? Because you've been grafted into the tree. You're abiding in Christ. You're alive in Christ. Thanks be to Christ. You as a branch on his tree have sprouted these little flowers. The little buds that are going to bear fruit. Okay? What's your part? Your part 
is simply opening up those flowers so that the pollinators and the sunshine can come in. You can't do that separated from the branch, can you? It's impossible. You're entirely dependent on the branch. All of who you are and all of what you are is of the branch, of Christ. But you really are consciously and willfully opening up to receive what you need to receive to bear good fruit. All right? You're positioning yourself in a way like a flower does as it positions itself and the sun is rising over it, points itself to the sun. You're doing that. You're positioning yourself in such a way that you are receiving the Spirit's nourishing work in you so that you can bear fruit for the glory of Christ. Are you following? So in what we're talking about today, you're opening yourself up to give. And the Spirit is operating in your giving to bear fruit through your giving in lots of ways. I'm just going to talk about three, okay? The first is this. The Spirit is using the church through your giving to meet the needs of the church. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 8, don't we? Much like the church in Corinth was being asked to meet a very real need, much like the churches in Macedonia were meeting that need, in the same way, God provides for the physical and financial needs of every church by using his people to meet those needs. The second thing that the Spirit does to bear fruit through your giving, that he is working in you, is this. When you give, it's actually an encouragement to others. But Paul's highlighting the example of the Macedonians. But he's not telling the Corinthians, be like them. You don't, you don't really see that. But he's saying, instead, look what the Lord is doing among them. Christ gets the glory. In 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, Paul wants that same thing for the Corinthians. He, he tells the Corinthians, he's not trying to compel them to give, but to let their giving be proof of their love. He wants others to see what Christ is doing in Corinth. A, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a, a scenario. Remember this? Our church burned down, earthquake, floods, everything's gone. All right, so let's keep going with that. All right, everything is destroyed. Our buildings destroyed. Our banks are closed. It's like Mad Max everywhere. People are fighting for food. Our children are going hungry. And suppose hearing about our predicament here, this this extremely poor, war torn little house church in Kandahar, Afghanistan. We're talking Taliban ground zero, right? A little house church in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Suppose that little church sends Del Cerro Baptist a love offering. And because of what they gave, our kids get to eat. And while you're thankful for the gift, you can't stop thinking, I had no idea that there was even a church in Kandahar. Praise God for what he's doing. Right? Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give because he wants the Jerusalem church to see what the gospel is doing everywhere else. He wants the Jerusalem church to see what Christ is doing in Corinth. 
And they can't see that unless they see the Corinthians growing in grace and loosening up from the things of the world. So so in the same way, know this, that your gift shows others the gospel's fruitfulness in you. Their faith is built up by your giving. And, And it works the other way too. Doesn't it? Our faith can be discouraged when we see others being stingy. Now, now, now both of those are gifts to the receiver of the material gift, aren't they? And Christ is glorified in both of those situations. But, but listen, the Spirit transforms the giver also. Here's how that happens. This is the, the, the third of those three ways the Spirit's bearing fruit. When we give from a gospel motivation, the Spirit is working in us. And here's what He's doing. He's gradually cutting off our ties to the world. Think think about it. Money is the the primary means of security in the world, isn't it? If you have money, you, you you can get anything you need. Food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Money is its safety, its security. And the illusion that money gives us is that because it provides for us, it's powerful. And we see the power of money, and we attribute deity to it. It becomes godlike to us. And so the very real danger is that we will find our security, our hope, in money. And we wouldn't say this, but we begin to worship it. We wouldn't say money is a god, will act like money is a God. When we're short on money, we'll become anxious and bitter. When we're flush, we'll have a sense that things are well, that the money God is blessing us, and so we invest to get more. We think his favor is on us now. And we take risks to get more. And we put our marriage at risk. And we put our children at risk. And we work harder and harder and harder to get more and more and more. But if we're born again into Christ, the Spirit, by the will of the Father, He doesn't want us to subject subject ourselves again to the slavery of the things of the world. We belong to Him. And He He rightly is a jealous God who loves us enough to protect us from being sucked in to shipwrecking our faith. We're his children, and he aims to guard us, to protect us. And so the Spirit works in us, and he, he moves in us to, to, to give. Why? So that he can wean us away from trusting in money. In the new creation, you won't have money. When, when you're giving you're practicing your new life in Christ in eternity. Giving is a means of grace because the Spirit is working in us, using our giving to cut away the ties that bind us to the world. The less dependent we are on the world, the more dependent we will be on our Father in heaven. Are you seeing how this works? So then, do you see how a question like, 
Should I tithe on my net or my gross earnings? Doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Do you see, do you see now how legalistic that sounds? This isn't about tithing. There is no tithing in the New Testament because there is no means of grace that is partial. You don't go 10% under the water in baptism. You, you don't give one ear, some of you do, but you don't give one ear hearing the word of God and another ear hearing something else. You don't drink 10% of the communion cup or eat 10% of the little wafer. No, you have been given all of Christ. All of Christ. So giving in response to the gospel is about totally receiving the grace of giving and growing in Christ-likeness as you give. If your if you're current give, giving right now, so some of you, your current giving is a tithe. Here's what I'd say to you. Great starting point. Give more. The Spirit is not done with you. He's not done transforming you into Christ's likeness. Give more. Resolve to open up a little more every year. Maybe just a half a percent every year. More and more and more as the ties to the world are cut off of your heart. Let Him, the Spirit in you, make you more like Christ. More and more dependent on the Father. Grow in grace. Grow in grace. And, and when I say that, I'm not saying add to what you give to Del Cerro. I don't care where your money goes. Give to world missions. Give to church planting. Give to help the hungry. Give to benevolence. Give to, to caps. Let the Spirit work in you through your giving to make you more dependent on the Father and less dependent on your money. For those of you whose giving is far less than a tithe. I would say the same thing. Resolve to give more than you do right now. It's probably accurate to say of you that you have benefited from a very, for a very long time from the generosity of others. You've received the benefits of grace that have come through them. And because of that, for some reason, you've grown complacent. Friend, you're holding back too much. Your, your next step in your growth in grace is to begin to experience the benefits of your adoption. You know in your heart that you belong to the Father, but you really prefer living in the orphanage for some reason. So, so, so loosen. Loosen the ties to the things you can see and know the joy of the grace of giving. Honestly recognize that you're being stingy and give more than you think is wise. Finally, there are some of you who claim Christ but give very little or none at all. I want to ask you an honest question. Is your refusal to give really a response to the gospel? Or is it something else? Do, do, do you really understand that you don't belong to you? That your future 
doesn't belong to you? Do you know that you belong to Christ? And this is, please trust me, this is not meant to make you feel guilty. I'm genuinely looking to move you toward the gospel. But this is a sign, this lack of giving, or whoever you are, it's a sign that there's some aspect of the gospel that hasn't rooted in your heart. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, I say this not as a command. It's not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And then, then look, he points to the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do, do you know what you have in Christ? Have you, do you understand what Rod prayed earlier? Just how rich you are in Christ? If you don't, or if it just hasn't settled in, and, and this did not happen on purpose, this is the way the Spirit works. Rod was quoting Ephesians 1 through 2, all right? And I had already written down your takeaway. Sit down every morning and read those verses, Ephesians chapter 1 through Ephesians chapter 2. And here's what I want you to do as you're reading that every morning. Divide a piece of paper down the middle. And on one column, write down, in the column number one, write down everything, every blessing that you have in Christ in Ephesians 1 through 2. You will find that is 10,000 blessings and more beside, as we sang. And then in the second column, I want you to write down everything that money gives you. And then, and then I want you to pray. Pray that the, that the Lord would make column one far more precious to you than column two. And do you know what will happen? If you're in Christ, if you're, if you're, if you're born again into Christ, I, I promise you the Lord will answer your prayer. He wants that for you. He will answer your prayer and you will grow in the grace of giving. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do, we do pray that that all of us here who are in Christ would find far more precious what we have in Christ than what we have in this world. Lord, would you transform us as, as we look to hope in Christ above all else, would you transform us in Christ's likeness? And would you use our giving, Lord, as a means to do that? And for those who this sounds like rubbish, Father, for those who, who hear this and, and all they can think is to tighten up and tighten up and tighten up, Lord, it's, it's clear they have not been born again into Christ. It's clear that this is not good news to them. So would you, would you make them new in Christ? Would you give them faith? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.